Welcome to the What If series, where we want to start conversations for a better world based on the Ten Commandments. This week we're going back to the Tenth Commandment, which says we must not covet something that belongs to someone else. In other words, don't be jealous of other people because you think their stuff would make you happy. So we're here in downtown Chicago and we're asking people what they think would make them happy. The question is, what do you wish you had that would make you happy? Unlimited time. I wish I had more time. More time. More freedom. Everybody always says peace of mind. Peace of mind. Peace of mind. I'm a very indecisive person, so just kind of having the clarity to know what I want in any given moment would be really nice. No debt. Uh, My student loans paid off. Uh, This is a very interesting question because sometimes I say money, but then other times I'm saying like a family and like a... Just a healthy life. I think I have everything that makes me happy. I wish I had a horse. Uh, an unlimited supply of um, Grater's um, cookie dough ice cream. So I was tracking with everybody right up until the horse. Uh, I, I don't really want a horse. Um, I'm not certain I believe that uh, cookie dough, unlimited supply of cookie dough ice cream would make me happy, but maybe. So uh, welcome, welcome to um, the eighth week of our series. Welcome to those joining us upstairs, Crossroads and Highland Park. So uh, early in this series, somebody handed me a copy of O Magazine, Oprah Winfrey's Magazine, which is not generally on my reading list, but they handed me the September 2018 edition, uh, because on the cover were the two big words, what if, which have uh, sort of informed this whole series. What if we actually took God at his word? What if we actually believed that these ten commandments were uh, wisdom from God who loves us and wants the best for us? What if? So, This week is uh, week eight. We actually are looking at the Tenth Commandment because we've noted we've got these two weeks we set aside for you to invite people into your small groups for discussions that are a little bit um, easier to have. And so we did one on the Fourth Commandment on the whole idea of pace of life and rest. And and we didn't want to wait until the Tenth Commandment. That sort of pushes us into Thanksgiving and it'd be hard and there's lots going on. But we thought that the Tenth Commandment, the whole issue of desire and materialism and all of that, would be easier for you to have a discussion with than, say, the Seventh Commandment about adultery. So we we sort of adjusted the schedule. We'll go back next week to the Eighth Commandment and then finish with the Ninth one. But today we are on the Tenth Commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 reads, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's house wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So as it turns out, this commandment is, um, is an important one. It's a unique one. It's a disruptive one. It's serious. It's, uh, it's encouraging in an odd way. It's a big commandment. I, I say it's important because um, it's a bookend. Now, it may not initially seem like it. We start with a commandment about God, and then we end up talking about donkeys. It may seem like uh, we're sort of running out of steam. But 
donkey is just sort of a, of an old way of talking about a car. And a car is just a placeholder for possessions. Do you, do you wish you had other people's stuff? And the, the whole issue here is going to be one of desire. And this commandment is unique because we've got lots of, of codes from old societies and modern day societies. We know the laws that villages and countries put out. No one has, in, has a law like this. Right? No one has a law that talks about what you think. Now, when Jesus updates and sort of expands on the Ten Commandments in the sermon he gives in, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, um, he makes it clear that God cares about our heart. And so he takes all of these commandments and sort of pushes down on them and says, it's not just murder, it's anger, it's not just adultery, it's lust. So there's a sense in which we understand God is concerned not just with our actions, but with our attitudes in our heart. But this is the only law, the ten, that actually leads with that. And it makes it very unique in, uh, in all of the history of laws. Um, this is a, a commandment that is disruptive in that it deals with our thoughts. And it's a command. So think about this. You are being commanded in a sense, to be happy. You are being commanded to be satisfied and content. Now, it's also disruptive because it's very Uh, un-American. There's a sense in which the U.S. economy depends upon all of us coveting, right? It it depends upon us uh, wanting more, newer, nicer stuff. So, uh, you know, the markets keep rolling forward because we've got to have... This is... Interestingly, this is a little new. Uh, I, I, I read this, don't ask me why, but I was reading about the history of, um, of retail. And one of the things that I had not ever thought of was that 150 years ago, you went to a shop and you went into a little front store, store you went into a little front showroom where there was a counter and somebody was there and you told them what you needed. You said, I need six of these and I need two of these and I need one of these. And then they went back into a storehouse and said, you never saw the stuff. They went back into a storehouse and they got you what you came in and said you needed and they gave it to you and then you left. Woolworths was the first store that actually started to put everything on display and let you walk around and see it. And Woolworths took off because people would go in and say, Oh, wow, well, I want one of those, and I want two of those. What's that? I'll take one. Right? It, it prompted us to sort of want what we didn't necessarily need, and it changed a whole lot about how we lived our lives. So it's disruptive because it challenges all of that. This commandment is also um, it's serious, and they're all serious, but it's, it's perhaps surprisingly serious. There are, there are a number of lists in uh, the Bible of things, and you can sort of tell things by the company they keep. And covetousness uh, is, is on lists with lots of bad company. In Romans 1, there's this list of wickedness and evil and depravity and envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, of people who are haters of good, arrogant, have no love, no mercy, and they covet. 
So there's covet alongside murder, strife, and all these bad lists. And in Ephesians 5, we get a similar kind of statement, that we're to keep ourselves from sexual immorality, we're to keep ourselves from all kinds of impurity, and we're to keep ourselves from coveting. So this is, a, this is a commandment that is perhaps a little bit more serious than we might think. It's also, I want to suggest, a very encouraging commandment. Because many of you are very unhappy. You are not satisfied. And you think, if only I had this. If only I had that. If I could finally get this job or make this much money or whatever it is, then I would be happy. And, and under my, underlining this commandment is a sense that we're not materially driven as much as we are spiritually shaped into that spot. And that for almost everyone in this room, it's not about the stuff. Right? The studies that are done by psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists say, yeah, there is a threshold below which you got to have stuff or you're not going to be content. Like if you're starving, you actually will be more content if you have food. But most of us are not starving. And the line is really low beyond which it becomes a spiritual issue, not a material issue. And I know that Some of you lose sleep because you think not, oh, I wish I had my neighbor's donkey, as the commandment reads. But some of you say, I wish I had my neighbor's spouse. Wish I was married to him. He's so good with the kids. Look, and he can fix things, and he hasn't gained weight. If I would be happy if I was married to him. Or I'd be happy if I was married to her. Right? She is, she has not let herself go. She's always seems to be happy. She manages money well. She doesn't whine. I'd be, happy. I'd be happy if I was married to her. I'd be happy if we lived in their house, if we had their kids, if I had his job, whatever it is. There's a whole lot of, I would be happy if this happened. And this commandment says, no, actually, you can be content. It's, it's, an, it's something that is under your control, but you have to think differently about it. So the 10th commandment, Exodus 20, 17, says you shall not covet. And the word covet is a, it's a, it's a hard word for translators to bring into the English language out of the Hebrew because we don't really have a good word in English for this word covet. Uh, the Hebrew word is hamad, and in, it, it means um, to, to desire uh, too much. So sort of toxic wanting. Uh, interestingly, in Arabic, it is a, it's, it's to praise, not to praise too much. It's a good word. So, Mohammed, Mohammed is to praise Allah. Hamid is to praise. In the Hebrew, it's to praise too much. In Deuteronomy, because the Ten Commandments are repeated both in, they, they're stated in Exodus and they're repeated in Deuteronomy. It's a different word that's used here, Anna, and it means it's a good word, but it gets amplified, and so it's, it's to want, and it's okay for us to want, but it's to want too much. It's to let our desires get out of check. So again, I want to stress that desire is not a bad thing. So 
Buddhism teaches that we've got we to learn to suppress our desire. Life is full of problems. The problems come because we want. Nirvana will be where we're finally at peace because we don't want. And so the goal is to learn how to not want. No desire. That's not what Christianity teaches at all. Christianity teaches that God created a world, and the world is good, and the world can be beautiful, and, and there are good things that can satisfy us, and that's God's delight. And so it doesn't say that desire is bad. And C.S. Lewis, by the way, has some interesting things to say uh, about this holding of desire. He, he was won to faith in part by the argument that if you're never ultimately satisfied in this world, if, if you have desires that can't perfectly be met in this world, then perhaps it's because you were made for another world. And that was very influential in sort of persuading him that, that he had been created for more than what he was seeing. But he also has this brilliant statement about desire in which he says, the problem that we have is not that our desires are too strong, but that they're too weak. And he said, we, uh, you know, God sort of marvels that we, we are uh, all consumed in the pursuit of, of, of money and sex and food when he offers so much beyond that. And, and he, he uses the story of the little boy. He says, we're like little boys playing, uh, a little boy living in a slum playing in a mud puddle who can't be persuaded to take a vacation to the sea where, where it's so much better. So Lewis would say, you know, we, we, we've got desire issues. They may not be what we think they are. I, I just want to say, Jesus desired food. He fasted and we're told that he was hungry. He desires water, right? He's on the cross. He says, I'm thirsty. He desires that his will would be done, uh, that he, he wants to go a different way than the way they're going to go. He, having desire, having want is not bad. It's just that we have got to keep our wants in check or they become greed and envy and lust and jealousy. And so we can't let these wants control our life. Okay, but how? Like, so how does that happen? Because we're not very good at this. Uh, I've I've sort of whined about this in the past, but you know, the, the big theme today, the thing that you that you get in the in the air that we breathe, is that we should be true to ourselves. We should chase our desires. We should, we should look at what it is that we want and go after it. And, when, and, and no one has the right to tell me that my wants are wrong or out of bounds. And, and I should just, I should, I've got to, the one thing I've got to do is be true to who I am. And the idea that I would conform my wants is considered crazy. So we're not particularly good at this. And, and we, we are, are insisting increasingly at a very new and different definition of freedom. Freedom used to be that, that, that it used to describe the freedom to do the right thing in order to raise our game. And so we became free to be great athletes if we disciplined our body and we practiced. We became free to, be, to create great music if we practiced the scales. We became free if we, if we worked and we elevated ourselves. Now, freedom gets used almost exclusively to talk not about the freedom of discipline, but the freedom from responsibilities. 
I don't want to have to do those things. I don't want to have to conform. I don't want to have to get in shape. I don't want to have to not eat what I want to eat. I want to be free to do whatever I want to do, but I want different results than what I'm going to get. So we're not, we're not as good at this as our, our grandparents and great-grandparents used to be. The whole idea of mental discipline is a little foreign. But there is a secret to this. That's Paul's language, not mine. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, in plenty and want. I have learned the secret. So what's the secret? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. But there are some other things that we can do that actually, uh, I didn't read the uh, O magazine, but I wouldn't have been surprised if I'd found these insights there. They're in Scripture, but they're also a little bit in the traffic today. They're, they're not what I would call common sense. They're, they're sort of the uncommon common sense. But there are some things that, that just deserve to be restated. How is it that we can be content? Stop looking. I mean, really, it's, it's sort of that simple. I, I, I'm surprised when I go shopping. I don't go shopping very often. Maybe that surprises you. Maybe it doesn't. But I'm always surprised when I go shopping of two things. First of all, how can I say that I'm a runner when if I walk 100 yards in a mall, I have to sit down and rest because I'm exhausted. I, I'm, I'm mystified by that. I'm also mystified by how much being in a mall makes me want stuff that I hadn't even thought about. Like, wow, I, I want that. I should write that down. I should put that on my Christmas list. I want that. Whoa, look at that. So just don't look. Right? So it's sort of stop looking. There are smart people who wake up every day trying to get you to buy things. And they're really good. And you've got to understand that. I remember... I remember when this really came into focus for me 25 years ago, I'm watching TV and a commercial comes on for trucks. And I found myself thinking, I need a truck. I need a truck, man's vehicle, it's time to get a truck, I need a truck. And I thought, think of all the times I could have used a truck recently. And I couldn't come up with one. And I thought, Woodruff, you've got car written all over your face. You carry books, not tools. You do not need a truck. Furthermore, at the time, we had three, there were five of us in the family. You know, getting a, a vehicle that's going to seat two or three people was really impractical. And, I, and I, I thought, okay, it's time to play Spot the Lie, right? Because I, I, had, I had heard about this. When you watch a commercial, play Spot the Lie. What, what is it that they're telling you? What, where is the disconnect here? They're promising something that they can't deliver. But, but you've got to just say, okay, I've got to play a little defensive here. I've got to stop looking at some of this stuff. Secondly, don't compare. I, so we get a little bit of this coming out in, in admonition in, in Romans chapter 9 where, where the clay can't say to the potter, I want to be this, I want to be that. Look, comparison is a, just, it's just a flawed endeavor. For starters, we, we're never really comparing our life in light of eternity with somebody else. Right? We're taking this very temporal snapshot. Um, but additionally, we, we compare from a distance, so we don't actually know what's going on in that person's life. 
and we compare very selectively. And the fact is, you can feel good or bad in any comparison you come up with. You want to feel poor? Compare yourself to Jeff Bezos at, uh, at Amazon. He's got a $160 billion. You probably don't have one, right? So you're poor. <laughs> or you can feel rich. You can say, wow, there's, there's a, a couple billion people trying to get by on $2 a day or less. Who are you going to compare yourself to? Want to feel uh, like, like you're a horrible athlete? Compare yourself to the, to the people that are on TV today. Want to feel like you're a good athlete? Compare yourself to somebody else. Right? You want to feel, you want, you want to feel uh, ugly? Compare yourself to the, to the movie stars. You want to feel good looking? Compare yourself to somebody who's not that good looking. We don't, we don't think Warren Buffett. There's a guy that I'm better looking than. Right? No, you compare, your, you compare your net worth to Warren Buffett and you compare your looks to somebody else. It's, a, it's just an exercise that, that, in futility. So stop comparing. What Scripture says, if you want to compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to Christ. Or compare your life to the Ten Commandments. Right? Those are the kind of comparisons that we're encouraged to do. <clears throat> the third thing that you can do to be content is a little surprising, and that is to go in the opposite direction. So I, I, I learned this. It, I didn't learn it well, but I learned it, and I keep going back to it. Shortly after we got married, we were, I'm a college pastor. I'm not making much money at all. We're living in an apartment that has electric heat, and we really can't afford to keep the electric heat on at the level at which would work. And Sherry's volunteering full-time with the college ministry, and she's also volunteering with a women's care shelter. And uh, she comes home from the care shelter one day, and she says, I want to give our space heater <clears throat> to Anita. And uh, Anita is this older woman that she works with who's very poor, and, and Sherry really likes Anita and is amazed by Anita. And, I, and I'm thinking... <laughs> The first thing I do every morning is turn that space heater on and curl up in front of it. I'm like, you want to give the space heater away? Are you kidding me? No, we're not going to give the space heater away. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> she doesn't push, but over time I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, what kind of guy am I going to be? I'm going to keep a space heater from this poor old freezing lady. So I'm like, okay, fine, give, give the space heater away. So she gives the space heater away, and she comes back uh, that 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 night. She was just one night a week at this um, women's care shelter. She comes back the next week, and I said, did you give this space heater to, <clears throat> to Anita? And she said, yeah. She goes, and the most amazing thing happened. She says, she was so happy. She was so happy. She goes, I felt so good. She was so happy. And she says, and then 10 minutes later, she gave it to this single mom. And she said, and she was so happy. And she kept saying to me, just think Right, that Janet is going to be warm. Janet and her kids are going to be warm tomorrow. Isn't that great? And I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, okay. I need to. I need to be. I need. I need to find joy in moving in the opposite direction. And I do find joy in that. Right. At some point, you wake up and you realize, you know, I have a lot more fun giving gifts than I do getting gifts. Right, so so at some point you gotta you gotta reflect a little bit on what it is that actually leads to contentment. 
And while I'm here, let me just say that if we reflected, we would realize that we've already played this game and it hasn't worked. Right? We've already said, I'll be happy when this happens. I'll be happy when this happens. If I make this much money, I'll be content. If I get this car, I'll never want a new car again. If I do this, if I do that. I remember, I remember first learning this in high school when I, I'm, I'm out for tennis and I'm thinking, I want to play varsity. I want to play varsity. I want to play varsity. And, and a couple years later when I got on the varsity squad, I thought, I want to be number one. I want to be number one. I, you know, it's like, no, there was no, there's no joy more than a, for about five or ten minutes that comes with this. And, and the Greeks, this is, this is not a secret, the Greeks told us this 3,000 years ago. They said, first of all, joy, happiness, is the byproduct of a life rightly lived. If you pursue happiness, if you pursue pleasure, it's like eating the icing off of the cake and just saying, I, this is what makes me happy, it's all I'm going to eat. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. And they also said, what makes you happy will not keep you happy. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta understand that, 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 that when you say, I'll be happy when I get this, that may make you happy for 10 minutes or for 10 days, but it won't ultimately keep you happy. It's not about the stuff. So Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, received, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Right? He's writing from a prison cell. First century Roman dungeon, and he says, I'm good. I have learned the secret. So he doesn't say, interestingly, he doesn't say he discovered it. He says he learned it. And he talks about it being a secret. So it's not common knowledge. So if you dig into this passage, two takeaways emerge. First, he, he credits the fact that he has been in situations of abundance and situations of need, and that that's part of how he figured this out. So at one point in Paul's, in Paul's life, he had everything. He was, he was the up-and-coming star, the best education, all the right birthright. He had everything. He had everything going for him, but he wasn't content. And at other times, he's been absolutely down low, in a prison cell, beaten. And so those experiences helped him figure out what actually works. And and if you read, you, you discover that lots of people, lots of us, don't have the opportunity or the experience of having the highest highs or the lowest lows. And we miss out on that. So I, I went looking for this quote um, it's sort of a famous quote by a, a celebrity writer who has passed away, Cynthia Heimel, a sort of provocative New York gossip columnist. And she was writing in the Village Voice 25 years ago, and she wrote this column that is 
frequently cited. She said, uh, I pity celebrities. I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and, uh, and Barbara Streisand wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make them ev- make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. So the, the statement that, that this woman writes about is, is significant, and I think you you think about it, you will realize many of the people who end their life are those at the very top or those at the very bottom, right? And at the bottom, it's, it's a different sit, sit, situation, but at the very top, it's, okay, I got everything that I set out that I thought was going to complete me, and I realized that it didn't. And many of us, we, we just, we don't, reflect long enough to realize that these things are not actually delivering like we thought. And Paul said, I learned this through plenty and want. I learned what actually satisfies my heart. And the second big takeaway is not a surprise, the secret. What is the secret? What does Paul say the secret is? It's it's more of a relationship with God. It's more of Christ. It's a deeper communion with God. Right? That's what he says. That, in the end, is the only thing that is going to satisfy. So let me put it this way. If you're not content, if you're not happy, if you are occasionally racked with like, oh, I just want my life to get better, then you have four options in front of you. Number one, you can blame the things. I need better things. If I had better things, a better spouse, a better house, a better job, a better golf swing, whatever, if I had better things, I would be happy. But I don't have those things, so I'm not happy. It's the thing's fault. You could blame yourself. Like, something is wrong with me. And there is something wrong with you. There's something wrong with all of us. But, but most of the time, we don't go deep enough when we're saying that. We say, I, I, you know, my parents did this to me, or I just don't have enough confidence, or I just don't have enough, these skills, or I'm just not smart enough. Or I'm just... That's not actually where the problem is. But you could blame yourself and head down that path. A third thing you could do is you can just blame the universe. It's the universe's fault. I got dealt a bad hand. I can't be content because I got dealt a bad hand. The fourth thing that you can say is, the problem here is my relationship with God. (laughs) I was created to have a deep, ongoing, abiding, moment-by-moment relationship with God. And, And to the extent that I am not good, like Paul, writing from a prison cell in in Rome, saying, I'm good. I've learned the secret of being content. 
to the extent that I am not content, it's because I am not chasing after God more deeply enough. So I, I, I want to say, this 10th commandment, it's very much like the first commandment in psychological terms. It, it doubles back. And, and what Paul is saying is, look, if there's anything, whatever that thing is, talent, a different spouse, a spouse, kids, kids performing at a certain level, if there's something that you think that, that, that is keeping you from being content, then that thing is an idol and it is getting between you and God. And that's the problem. And that's why this is the 10th commandment. It is doubling back on that particular issue. And it's saying no thing, no person, no desire should ever get between you and your relationship with God because you and I were ultimately created for a deep abiding relationship with Christ. What besides Jesus has become the source of your joy, identity, salvation, well-being, preoccupation, loyalty, or delight? The Tenth Commandment says, don't go there. Recognize that as a, as a trap, as an idol, as a dead end, and run after God. Don't stop until you find him and in him great joy. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we confess that um, we have been blessed with a lot. Many of us have been blessed with a lot of things in a lot of different ways. And yet, there is an ongoing desire for more. We thank you for the many wonderful good things that you've given us. We confess we're not as thankful for them as we should be. Help us understand that ultimately the, the, the satisfaction, the joy, the contentment that we're most after comes from you and you alone. And help us lean more deeply into you, your love, your grace, your kindness, your goodness, your care. May we be, may we be overwhelmed by your beauty, your majesty, your holiness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.